The United Nations Economic Commission for Africa says that between 300,000 and 3.3 million Africans could lose their lives as a direct result of COVID-19, depending on the intervention measures taken to stop the spread. But at the same time, countries in West Africa are no strangers to preventative measures to avoid the spread of viruses. So, Nick, can you talk to me about the difference between what might be perception and what's actual reality when it comes to West Africa? When there was the Ebola outbreak and it happened in West Africa, people just looked at us as that, you know, we're dirty. So when we heard about the coronavirus, what's really interesting is that before it hit Europe, everybody was afraid that it was going to hit Africa. I think even European experts who are really predicting this is going to be the big place where this is all going to play out were surprised that actually it came to their continent before coming to Africa. The reality is that most cases didn't come from Chinese people. They came from Europeans. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Just four years ago, West Africa came out of the most widespread Ebola outbreak the world had ever seen. Now, countries like Senegal are showing how the lessons they learned from the past health crisis could help them contain the coronavirus. Nicholas Huck lives in Dakar, Senegal's capital, and reports for Al Jazeera from all around West Africa. He covered the Ebola outbreak over the two years that the epidemic ravaged the region. Nick, how would you describe how the Senegalese government has reacted to the novel coronavirus? What happened really quickly is that as soon as it hit Europe, as soon as it saw a lot of people dying in Italy and France, the government took drastic measures. So they shut the borders, shut the airport, shut everything down to ensure that there wouldn't be any imported cases. There wasn't even a single death at that time. So what kind of drastic measures? A curfew was put in place. So from 8 o'clock at night till 6 o'clock in, in, the, in the morning, there is no one on the streets. Just everybody's in their homes. What does that mean for everyday life? Are shops closed? Are markets closed? Are, are people still out and about? There are still people that go out if they have to. I mean, there's no kind of binding rule like you cannot go out. I mean, like... For most people in Senegal, a day without work means a day without food. So it's just not realistic to kind of close people off in their homes. The hardest thing for people to accept is that Juma prayer, Friday prayer, was no longer permissible, that people couldn't go to mosques. And, and the fact that that was put in place very early shocked people. And mm-hmm. people woke up to the reality like, this is really serious. And people obeyed by it. People are praying in their homes instead of congregating. I'm talking to some, that's... Hi. <laughs> that's my middle child. I'm talking to, to this, there's other people I'm talking to behind this. Now, now uh, I'm sad there's no video. <laughs> of course, what I forgot to mention is that schools were shut down very early on. So, so, so of course, we're all homeschooling, including myself. I want to talk about how this whole system has evolved 
You spoke to Dr. Abdullahi Buso, the head of emergency response in Senegal. Tell me about that. Well, Dr. Buso is 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 the equivalent of the Dr. Fossey for the United States. The first thing that was important for the the government to do is messaging. So there is in Senegal every day a uh, press briefing point early morning so that people know what it to expect during the day and what happened the day before. We learn now from China is all the measures they they had taken to contain this uh, epidemic. And from Europe, we learned that we need to act fast. First of all, now in Senegal, everybody, wherever you go, we check your fever. And if you have a fever, you're put aside. I cannot spend a day without having my temperature tested multiple times. Mm. So, okay, maybe there's a shortage of doctors, but there's no shortage of thermometers. And for them, that's, that's kind of the, the front line. And that was set up by Dr. Busso. Today, if you enter a health center and you have, I don't know, like a broken toe, you'll be tested first for the coronavirus. Hmm. And that's because he wants to protect his staff, his doctors, his nurses. Another step that he took is that the person that is infected, all of his relatives and all the people that are in contact with him will be taken in isolation. Senegal started contact tracing as far back as 2015. And it proved successful in stopping the spread of Ebola. Now, thousands of people are being isolated in hotels. These are people who have been in contact with infected cases. And these are not just like, you know, crappy hotels. These are also five-star hotels. All the hotels are filled with people that have been in contact. Right now, we've got tens of thousands of people staying in hotels. And there's no shortage of hotels here because this is, uh, tourism is a big um, income earner. And so by doing that, not only is the government subsidizing the hotels and keeping the employees of those hotels gainfully employed, but he's also using them to tackle the coronavirus and to isolate people. They're also using public mobile data to help in their surveillance effort. The thinking is, if they can see who an infected person has been in contact with, they can get that person tested and treated. They track people's mobile phone. This might be controversial in certain... (laughs) liberal democracies, but this is what they're doing. For instance, just two days ago, there was a case in Ziguinchor, which is in Casamance, a region about a thousand kilometers away from the capital. They traced back, thanks to his mobile phone data, how he got the virus from the suburbs of Dakar. And then they isolated the people that he was in touch with in the suburbs of Dakar. I mean, that's incredible. But what's incredible is is he, this is a model of successfully controlling the the virus without going in full confinement and with having not that much of a of a health budget. Was the threat of Ebola what helped get to this kind of uh, this ideal scenario that you're describing right now? Absolutely, Ebola was key. One of the lessons learned from Ebola, to have a structure, to have people trained, to be able to, to manage outbreak. Because now we are talking on washing hands. It was the same during the Ebola outbreak. And we use those strategies now to help people to, to face the situation. Mm-hmm. 
Many NGOs in the region work closely with health officials to raise awareness when it comes to managing the crisis. We reached out to the Catholic Relief Services, CRS, and they told us how they're working with communities in Senegal. This is Anta James, their representative for the region. Catholic Relief Services Senegal programs created community-based infectious disease surveillance groups. These are made up of trusted community members, such as religious leaders, traditional healers, village chiefs, women that are leading groups, um, community health workers. They go on house visits um, and directly seek out people in the community who are feeling sick. And together, CRS and the Ministry of Health in Senegal are broadcasting ads on community radio stations. The ads are in Wolof and French, the languages in the country, to help educate people about how to prevent the spread of the virus. Coronavirus, Senegal is home to one of the most renowned biomedical research centers. It's the Pesir Institute, and they're developing an affordable test for the coronavirus, which is pretty incredible when you think about it. You spoke to the director of the center. What did he tell you? Amadou Sal is the director of the Institute Pester in Dakar. He was a key person in containing the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. In early January, he was working with a lab in biotech in the UK, but also researchers in the United States funded by the NIH to try to find an early detection kit with dengue fever. Dengue fever is endemic in certain parts of West Africa. So they were developing this kit and they quickly turned their attention to coronavirus. It's a $1 kit and it's a mobile kit. So you take a swab of saliva or blood, you put it into this small machine that looks like a, a, a suitcase. And 10 minutes later, you have the results of whether or not you're infected with the virus. The idea for these tests is to allow quick testing to be done in remote places without the special need of a super equipped laboratory. We can manage to test up to 500 samples per day with the possibility of going up to 1,000. So they're going to be producing hundreds of thousands of them here in, in Senegal and in the United Kingdom. And this is for mostly countries in sub-Saharan Africa where people don't have access to labs or health centers. So the idea here is to bring the lab to people rather than get people to the lab or to health centers. It's to avoid contamination. Several African countries have relationships with China. And because of them, there's been a flow of information shared from the Chinese government on how best to contain COVID-19. The key things that the Chinese shared to Dr. Busso, that key to trying to fight the outbreak is detection of people who have fevers. So that's why China is collaborating with the Senegalese government to try to find ways in which they can help not just China, but also private businessmen. The CEO of Alibaba sent cargo filled with masks and PPEs and things like that to Senegal. It's interesting the choices 
that China has made, which countries it's distributing most of its help to, like Ethiopia, like Senegal, like, you know, countries where they have strong interests, like Zambia, you know, or, or Uganda. That's one of the reasons why Senegal was perhaps so successful in, in containing the outbreak so far, is that there is daily conversations between Dr. Busso, you know, our Dr. Fossey here, and his counterpart in China. And, of course, citizens of West Africa are stepping up as well. There's a story about these Senegalese engineers for using 3D printing to make ventilators. Do you know about that? Yeah, absolutely. Makeshift ventilators could save people's lives. And that's what's amazing with what these Senegalese engineers are doing. The, the African know-how is, is, is incredible. Every day people applaud these health workers that are on the front line in Europe and in, and in the United States. We should really be applauding these researchers from, you know, Latin America, Asia, Africa, from Venezuela, Senegal or India or all these people that have been working for decades on infectious diseases. And suddenly their work is relevant, not just for people in their country, but for people across the globe. As Senegal is being championed for its early testing, calls for lockdowns, and 3D-printed ventilators, we learned about some American expats living in the country who are faced with the choice to stay or return to the United States on a State Department chartered plane. We spoke to two of them. Both, given the same choice, they each took different paths, but reached the same conclusion. My name is Dan Honig. I'm an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins SICE, which is a Johns Hopkins policy school in D.C. Dan got to Senegal at the beginning of the year with his wife and five-year-old son. He's been on sabbatical, traveling Europe and Africa for his research. Now, they had to choose. Shelter in place or go. It wasn't an easy choice for us. And so with no commercial flights available, the State Department flight essentially was our one option for a while of being able to leave the country. So we were really on the fence about whether to go. But in the end, we decided that we would rather be in a country where the pandemic was raging much more strongly, but one where we are all citizens and speak the language and can navigate and have resources. The State Department plane as the only way out, Dan and his family got on. It was a medical evacuation flight. The seats are all kind of from different kinds of planes. They don't match each other, bolted onto the ground. There are kind of medical hazmat sort of areas in the flight, in, you know, sort of quarantine bays, I suppose, built into the plane. There are men wearing full protective equipment who say, like, okay, there's going to be a medical check on the way in. You know, this is going to take a while to board. And so we walk up onto the plane. Each of us in turn is has their temperature taken and is given a medical wristband. And if they're not already wearing a mask, a medical mask and given kind of a kind of a seat number. And we sit in the belly of this very large cargo plane. Six weeks before Dan and his family boarded the U.S. government plane back home, he'd been traveling to other countries in West Africa and experienced their responses to the pandemic. 
In late February, I crossed the border between Senegal and Guinea-Bissau. At that point, at the land border of Guinea-Bissau, one of the poorest countries in the world, I was asked to wash my hands with iodine water. My temperature was taken. They asked me questions about whether I was sick and my recent travels, etc. I then arrived back to Senegal in early March after coming from Europe. And at that point, again, my temperature was taken. In this case, they took my phone number as well. And they asked me my seat number, which I can only imagine would be useful in case somebody in a seat nearby fell ill. So we should want to know who is in fact proximate to whom on the airplane. But what Dan would experience upon entering the United States was unexpected. The best way I can describe what happened is nothing happened. I expected to see, I don't know, medical personnel taking our temperature. We're still wearing wristbands with our temperatures on them from the flight. And I imagined that that was so that our temperatures could be taken on arrival and compared. Because perhaps if your temperature changes, that's something to think about. But nothing like that. We walked up to global entry. I thought, oh, surely the kiosks aren't open because you have to touch a screen. But that wasn't the case. There was no sign suggesting that I sanitize my hand, nor was there any indication that these kiosks were being, were being sanitized. We spoke to an immigration officer. He took our passports, took photos, and said, welcome to America. Other than him wearing a mask, And the question about whether we'd traveled elsewhere, there was no additional process. We picked up our bags off the carousel and we walked into America. No medical check, no temperature, no transmission of data or phone number, no knowledge of who we sat near on the plane, no disinfecting protocol of any kind at any point. Dan says he's happy to be home and thankful to the American government for helping him get there. But he says the stark differences between the U.S. and Senegal in protocol are significant. I did feel that at this stage of the pandemic, the fact that this American airport, this major gateway, was doing less to sort of protect public health than were the border guards in Guinea-Bissau six weeks before or Senegal on arrival a month before, I would say that did sadden me and worry me about what was coming ahead. And I put that failure, to be clear, fully at the feet of government policy, not the individuals uh, working in the system. While Dan and his family have settled in Virginia, another American family made the decision to stay in Senegal. In the very beginning, of course, like I think most people, we, we weren't sure how fast it would happen in Senegal and, and what it would look like. But to be perfectly honest with you, the Senegalese government responded so early and so well, in my opinion, that we we had initially felt quite safe and secure with the decision-making going on in Senegal. That's Shannon Underwood. She's an immigration attorney who works remotely from Senegal. Her home base is Seattle, Washington, which at the time was the epicenter of the pandemic in the U.S., She said that after a few calls between family and friends and hearing the uncertainty back home in Seattle, the decision to stay in Senegal was an easy one. I think that the expat community here, people that I've been in touch with, have all really expressed gratitude and gratefulness for the way that the government has handled it here and have compared it to other countries like the United States in a way that they felt like Africa 
West Africa, Senegal has done a remarkable job of being reactionary and preventative to this outbreak. And it makes me proud to be here because I think people underestimate Africa and, and what the governments can do here. So Nick, you've lived in Senegal for about six years, right? That's right. So I'm reading out your Twitter bio here. Journalist, father of three, Sudoku <laughs> and surf. All things uh, made possible in Senegal, in Dakar, where you are. How That's are right. you coping? How are things being handled in your perspective? You know, I have I have a personal take on, on, on this because... You know, my parents are people that dedicated their life to tropical medicine. You know, you don't need a lot of money, but you need a little bit of know-how and a little bit of of, of lateral thinking to tackle viruses. It's not just down to technology. And this is what this crisis is revealing. You can be self-reliant and resilient in the face of a crisis. And that's what I'm seeing here. I could have left, gone back to France, where, where I'm from, or the United States. But, you know, we decided to stay here as a family because this is our home. And I think this is the safest place where to hunker down and to get through all of this. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Ney Alvarez, Priyanka Tilve, and Dina Kispe with Amy Walters, Alexandra Locke, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan was the sound designer. Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. And Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. If you haven't subscribed to the show yet, go to this episode's description. You'll find extra information about the topic and also our social media handles. And for more, just go to podcast.aljazeera.com slash The Take.